0: Amen, amen, you can be seated. Uh, we're in Second Peter this morning, chapter 1, verses 3 through 15. I'm trying to get my timer opened to give me some semblance of, as if I'm concerned about how long we're here. Uh, I am, but it's not my first priority, but I do need to keep it in mind. Um, anyway, because I know that, well, I know I, I, can't, I can't talk. For, I could talk for two hours. You don't want me to talk for two hours, I can guarantee it. Anyway, what did you say? I think somebody's talking about me. <clears throat> Seriously, here, here we're Second Peter chapter three, verse one through fifteen. Picking up really in this in this last couple of weeks, we through the summer we did a series through the Psalms to just really see and hear from God's people, them speaking, reacting, relating to this Creator that has so gloriously made Himself known in our world. And now, uh, these last couple of weeks, as we prepare to start this equip ministry and add to what we've been doing for 10 years now, we are uh, taking some time and studying now what the knowledge of God, what role it plays, knowing God, how vital and important it is for us. And so, last week we studied from Colossians this prayer where Paul prays specifically that God would give knowledge, that reality is knowledge in, in part is something that comes from him. This knowledge of him, this knowledge of uh, knowing what he's done for us, it's a gift. And so Paul prays for it. Well, today we're going to see Peter call the church to it. The truth is for generations we've been seeking to, to rid ourselves of the knowledge of God, it's just been something, you, you can watch it in, in history, you can see it happening. I mean, from things like uh, evolution, we have decided we weren't created, because if we were created, there's a, a responsibility to a creator. So we rid ourselves of the knowledge of creation and commit ourselves to the theory of evolution. And it's all around us, everywhere we look. In more recent years, and you see this in the news, we have sought to rid ourselves of any kind of biblical authority. So, so where the Bible has been put in public and placed on buildings uh, in, in our system, in our in, especially in our governmental system, we're seeking to remove it. We want to rid ourselves of any uh, uh, sense that the Bible has s- some authority over us, that it has any, any anything for us, that it would call us to anything that we don't want for ourselves. It shouldn't surprise us, really. I mean, to be honest, rejecting the truth and believing a lie, uh, um, just uh, worshiping the creation rather than the creator, seeing the evidence all around us for God, but denying that, that's the hallmarks of what it is to be a sinner. That's what this is what Paul describes in Romans chapter 1 as the reality of what puts us in this place. So we shouldn't be surprised that we look out into the world and see this at hand. We shouldn't be surprised by the, the lack of a desire for the knowledge of God and his word to be everywhere we look across our country. But what's sad and shocking is that it's just as true, often just as true as the world around us. It's just as true in the church of America. I came across a couple of articles and, and i, I can 't read them both to you or all of them to you I, um, but i I want you to hear just where we 're at as a as a church in america first ed stetzer he 's a pastor and an author. Um, um, I don't know if you've heard of him or not, but he wrote this article. You could go out and look it up. I could give you the resource if you want it. He writes this. He says, Christians claim to believe the Bible is God's word. We claim it's God's divinely inspired inerrant message to us. Yet despite this, we aren't reading it. A recent Lifeway research study found only 45% of those who regularly attend church read the Bible more than once a week. So, so just put that into context, into, into just pull it out of it's not just a number on a page, right? 45%, that's less than half of the people that come to church regularly, and that's not weekly, but regularly. That's a hard one to say regularly. Those people, of them, less than half, Read the Bible more than once a week. So we're more often turning on the television, more often listening to the world's influence, more often than than turning to the pages of Scripture. So we might reserve the study of God's Word for one hour a week, but it's for just under half, we're, we're not opening the Bible again. Over 40%, so now we're, we're dealing with 45%, now there's 40%. That's going to be about 85%, right, like if you do the math. Over 40% of the people attending read their Bible occasionally, maybe once or twice a month. So you have 45% of the people who might open it one more time during the week, or at least are opening when they're at church. And then the next 40%, they... They're opening it at church, but then never, uh, maybe once or twice a month. More than when they're at church. Over 40% of the people attending read their Bible occasionally, maybe once or twice a month. Almost one in five church scores say they never read the Bible. Essentially, it's, that's the same number as those who read it every day. So you're dealing with, the, the, the reality is, is that one in five people in the church. This is professing believers. This is people who come to church because they recognize the fruit, the value, the, the importance. One in five actually interact with God's Word on a daily basis. And one in five actually never touch it. And then the other, uh, the other 85% of those people are occasionally associated. Now, listen to his conclusion. And, and there's much more he had to say about this, but listen to his conclusion. He says, because we don't read God's Word, it follows that we don't know it, right? So there's a reality that if we don't read it, we can't know it. We, we don't read the, the Bible, so we can't know the Bible. We don't read God's Word, so we can't know the God of the Word, right? There's this, this connection, there's a reality that we're in this place where we don't know God, not because He's not made Himself known, but because we're not availing ourselves of the way that He's revealed Himself specifically, in another article, Al Moler, president of the Southern, the Southern Baptist Seminary, they love to emphasize that, he addresses this same biblical illiteracy issue. He also writes and shares some pretty startling statistics. He writes this. Researchers, George Gallup and Jim Castelli, put the problem squarely. Americans revere the Bible, but by and large they don't read it. Same, same, same thing that Ed Stetzer was presenting from other research. They revere the Bible, they don't read it, and because they don't read it, they have become a nation of biblical illiterates. He begins to draw some conclusions from that. He says, how bad is it? Researchers tell us that it's worse than most could imagine. Fewer than half of all all adults can name the four Gospels. Many Christians cannot identify more than two or three of the disciples. According to data from the Barna Research Group, or 60% of Americans can't even name, or can't name even five of the Ten Commandments. According to 82% of Americans, listen to this, 82% of Americans, God helps those who help themselves is a Bible verse. I'm not trying to make fun of them. I mean, just in case you're curious, it's not. God helps those who help themselves 82% 82% of Americans believe it's a Bible verse. Those identified, listen to this, those identified as born-again Christians did better by 1%. 81% of people who profess faith in Christ know the Bible so little that they believe that God helps them who helps themselves is a Bible verse. Is Just make the connection here. Is there... Is there a, a, a reason why we don't sense and know the assurance of the gospel when we think that in some way we've got to drum it up within ourselves to, to make this happen? Like, God's not going to help me unless I do something to help myself. Like, who is dead, uh, spiritually dead, incapable, totally depraved person is supposed to somehow drum it up in themselves if they're ever to receive any help from God. Because 81% of us believe that he helps those who help themselves is some biblical truth see the reality is it's not only a stark contrast but it's a it, it, the implications of it are dangerous a majority I, let, me, let me finish sharing with, uh, what i'm sorry it just concerns me a majority of adults think the bible teaches that the most important purpose in life is taking care of one's family now at one point in the article, he actually shares a statistic that says that, that demonstrated that 50% of high school students surveyed in one, in one body of research, 50% of high school students thought that Sodom and Gomorrah were a married couple. This is sad. He goes on and he demonstrates what his opinion is, why he believes this is true, and he talks about the importance of biblical teaching in the church, not just in this moment but in everything we do. But he also then points out why this is such an important issue. Let me just read one of his conclusions. We will not believe more than we know. We will not believe more than we know, and we will not live higher than our Beliefs, you can see why the implications of what we know, why it's so important for how we live. We will not believe more than we know, and we will not live higher than our beliefs. This is not Moeller. I mean, Mohler's a sharp guy. He's not the one. This is a biblical principle. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 10 that they cannot believe if they have not heard. They cannot hear if someone doesn't go preach. They cannot believe if they have not heard. There's there's a biblical principle to be seen here. We cannot believe what we do not know. What we do not know cannot affect our life through faith. He goes on, the many fronts of Christian compromise in this generation can be directly traced to biblical illiteracy in the pews and the absence of biblical preaching and teaching in our homes and churches. We live in an age where people have sought to dumb down the gospel because they think in some way that that's serving people. When we desperately need to know not just the basics of the gospel, but the depth of the gospel... We desperately need to know, not just for a moment, but for the sake of our lives and to fully enjoy the fullness of the relationship that comes in God. We must know the gospel. and We must grow in knowing the gospel. This is the reason that we're adding the equip ministry the way we are. Because we live in a world that is constantly throwing information at you, that's constantly seeking to influence you, that's constantly seeking to overcome what you know today with what they want you to believe is true. I want our church, your pastors want our church to know the gospel from beginning to end. We want you to know and grow up in the gospel. So that the influence of the world doesn't take root in you. So that you don't walk around as an unhealthy believer. So that you don't walk around believing non-truths and believing that falsehoods come from Scripture. We don't want you grabbing hold of trite little sayings that come out of American culture and think that in some way they carry biblical authority. We want you to know the gospel And the God of the gospel, because that's where you enjoy him most fully. And so as I mentioned last week, because of that and because of launching into this next week, we are studying this this role that knowledge plays. Last week we saw that in Colossians from Paul's prayer, and this week we're going to see Peter literally call the church to it. So we get to see both sides of this. We get to see Paul crying out, praying, pleading with God. Give it to them. And Peter now turning around and saying to God's people, do everything you can to grow in it because it's vital. So let's see it. i does not take my word for it. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 15 reads this way. His divine power... Has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. You hear the word knowledge already, right? Like He has called us to to this through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. He's given us His divine power. He's gifted us His divine power. All things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. By which. He has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, because God has done this, he's saying now, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, Though you, may, though you know them and are established in them the truth that you have, I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. And it's pretty clear from this Introduction. Now, I don't know if you've ever studied his other letter, Peter's other letter to the church, that there's um, a different reason here that Peter's writing. In his first letter, he's writing about the hope that he wants them to have in light of the knowledge of Christ. He wants a persecuted, suffering church to have hope through the gospel. But here he's emphasizing for the church, and and really one of his last letters, based on what he's saying here, that one of the last things that he's going to do in front of the church, write officially for the church, he's making certain that they hear the emphasis and the importance of what they know about Jesus. He's letting them see the role, he's calling them to understand the importance of the knowledge that we find in the Father, and in the Christ that the Father sent by the power of the Spirit who enlightens us. And then, as he unfolds what God has done for us, he calls us to something. He calls us to this expectation that I think becomes abundantly clear that because of what we know, our lives are to be affected. Because of, because of what we know, because of what we've come to believe, our lives should look radically different. And we're going to study this in three sections. We're going to hit this from three different uh, in three different chunks. We're going to go back through it. Uh, you might say that that we're going to three words that are kind of going to going to, going to kind of um, guide that. So there, and there are words. I hope they'll help you remember them later. But Christians have received. Christians are responsible and Christians need to be reminded. That's that's the three perspectives, that's the three pieces, the three ways that I think this passage breaks down most easily for us to understand. And we're going to start back in verse 3 through 4. And we're going to see what we've received. Now, the reality is there's so much in these two verses. I mean, we could spend a week just talking about what's in these two verses. They're so full, so rich. But if I were to summarize this, if I was to just try to bring it to you and say this is is the heartbeat, this is the theme, this is is what Peter's trying to get across, I'd just say this is an expression of the gospel. There's not a clear mention of the cross. There's not a clear mention of of our sin, although it's, it's certainly talked about, it's certainly referenced, but it's not a clear mention of exactly what God did on our behalf. But still, don't miss this. This is an expression of God's gospel truth and so i would i would say that through the gospel every christian becomes the recipient of god's power and promises it's this gospel work that god has done that enables us to enjoy his power and to receive his promise look at these verses his divine power granted it and what did it grant all things that pertain to life and godliness how did it grant it through the knowledge of him who called us And and, and what did he grant us with this power? His precious and very great promises. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. God has worked by his own power. God has done this. He did this work. He's the one by his effort, by his ability, by his nature that made this possible. He didn't say, I'm going to do some and you do some. He's doing it all. Every last bit of it. God has worked by his own power to make us, Or let me say say it a different way. He he has worked by his own power to make himself accessible to us. He didn't do, do this in a little small way, but in every way we need. He gave us everything. That means everything that we have that pertains to life and godliness is from God. That means that there's not anything that he's held back that you need for life and godliness. You see these two things happening. He's given you everything that's necessary for it and he is saying, I'm not holding anything from you. And by his own power, he has made this available to us. Rather than being crushed by his power, We become beneficiaries of it. If he doesn't do this, his power, his nature, his holiness consumes us. But by his power, by his own effort, he makes his power a benefit to us rather than a curse to us. Rather than being removed from his presence, we get to actually enjoy it. He says that we become partakers of the divine nature. The word is, as I can't remember exactly, it's the word that, that uh, it deals with koinonia. It's not exactly that. It's a form of the word. I'm not going to say it right. But essentially, it talks about fellowship. We actually get to have fellowship with him. We get to enjoy relationship with him. Rather than being sent away, we get to be drawn in close. Rather than experience his wrath, we receive his promise. Essentially, he has enabled us to enjoy him. By his power, he did this work. There's nothing he held back. And there's nothing that we have that pertains to this that didn't come from Him. But how does it come available to us? How does He make us able to enjoy that? Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. It's not by what we've done. It's not by what we deserve. It's by who we know. It's in our knowledge of him. And, and, and again, as just like last week, this, this knowledge that it's referring to, epi, epinosis, is a, it's intensified. It's not just knowledge of a subject. It's not just, not just knowing about something. It's not just having a theory floating around in our head. It's a knowledge that's intimate, that's intensified, that's, that, that's, that's deeper than. And most often we would say, well, that's our faith, right? And, and yes, it is, but, 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 but note this. There is no faith without knowledge. We don't have a blind faith. We don't have a faith that's not built out of intellectual thought. We don't have a faith that just emptily, in an empty-minded way says, well, that's just what he said. No, he calls us to, to engage our intellect, to engage our mind in the knowing and believing. Believing. The assumption here is that we have known him in such a way that we have trusted him. And in fact, you'll see in just a minute in the next verse that he's using this knowledge as a synonym for faith. He's saying that God has used this vehicle of your knowledge of Jesus to bring to you his power. And to bring to you his his power in a beneficial way and his promises in a way that overwhelms and overcomes and undoes his wrath. He says that you know Jesus as your Savior, the one who calls you to himself. The one who says, come to me. The one who's given you knowledge that, that you come to him as he's, as he's saving you, that he's removing you and, and helping you escape from the, the corruption that, that sinful desires have led us to. You know him as your Savior who died in your place for your sins, who rose victoriously, defeating death, who ascended to the right hand of the Father, and now waits for the moment that he returns to bring his people unto himself. That's who you know him to be. You know him to be your Lord. As one with authority over your life. King of kings and Lord of lords. There's none higher. There's there's no one that, that would reign above him. And one day, one day, regardless of whether they accept it now or not, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. But you aren't waiting for that day because you know him. You know him as your Savior and Lord. You see, the reality of these words are not written, these words are not written to the rest of the world. These words are written to God's people, to Christians. Christians. That's why the point I make is that through the gospel, every Christian becomes the recipient. Not not through the gospel, every person becomes. Through the gospel, every Christian becomes. Everyone who knows Christ in this way that they trust Christ. And this is what makes us Christians. Being Christian is not like being Buddhist. We can adhere to the teachings of Buddha and it really not have any effect on our internal nature and the nature of who we are or our identity, those very core pieces of, of what make us who we are, or then bear out on what we do. It's not the same as following or adhering to the Old Testament law, the religion that the Pharisees sought to, to affirm themselves by. You see, there's plenty of people who put on religion as if it's something that's going to change them from the outside in. But Peter is talking about a knowledge that's been gifted to us, that's been given to us by God's power so that we are changed from without or, or, or from inside out. We are changed in such a way that our internal nature begins to shift and change based on what we know about who Jesus is is. And every bit of it, God's done by his own power. And before we move on, we have to deal with this. You have to hear it because what I'm about to call people to can be received one of two ways. I mean, either you have this knowledge now and you need to hear what's said next Or you've never trusted in Christ, you've over only followed a religion, and you think, oh well, if I do these things next, then God will love me. And no, no, please don't hear that. In fact, I would suggest to you, if you have never trusted in Christ, if you have never known him as your Lord and Savior, you need to start dealing with that right now. That's primary. If you've come to church all your life and you thought in some way that makes you worthy of God, then you need to deal with him right now that the knowledge of Christ is by his power that then gives you his promise. You need to deal with the reality. You need to trust in Jesus. You need to know him as your Lord. You need to know him as your Savior before any of the following words would ever apply to you. But if what I think is true, that the majority of those sitting in this room today probably are, know, that you probably already know him as Lord and Savior, then the reality is you need to hear these words and recognize that that knowledge has implications for your life. He goes on. God has done this for us. He's given us his power and his promises through the knowledge of Christ, through faith in Christ, if you will. And in verse five, for this very reason, because of what God has done, make every effort. You're not saved by your effort. You are not saved by what you can do. You are not you are not acceptable to God based on your performance. You are not, hey, you don't have access. His power, His divine power is what gives you everything you need pertaining to life and godliness. But now, as one who has received it through the knowledge of Him who has called us, as one who is a partaker of the divine nature, make every effort. See, because of the gospel, because of what He's done, because of the good news of Jesus Christ, because of the reality that we are recipients of God's Power and promises, because of that gospel truth, every Christian becomes responsible to pursue growth in knowing God and doing good. We become responsible to take hold of it and do something with it. Make every effort to add to your faith. And so often it seems counterintuitive because we think, Oh, well, I'm not saved by works. I'm saved by grace. Yes, you are. But if you're saved, you have responsibility then to do something with it, to get up and act like it. This is so important. That's why I said before, I can't apply this part of the message to those who don't know Christ. Deal with that. Know him. You are a sinner who needs a Savior. He is the Savior who can save you. But if you know him, you're responsible to do everything you can with that knowledge to grow in that knowledge and do what you're supposed to because of that knowledge. Because we know the gospel, because we believe the gospel, because we have been made recipients of God's power and promise in the gospel, because we're now partakers of the divine nature as a result of the gospel, we are now responsible to set everything else aside, to set everything else at bay, to leverage all of what we've been given in the gospel to grow up in the gospel. It's so drastically different than what we're hearing of these statistics. So drastically different than what seems to be happening in the American church that's becoming biblically illiterate, that they don't know the God of the Word because they don't know the Word. But yet, Peter is making clear we must make every effort to just recognize what he's saying. This is the highest priority. More than being a good husband or a good father or a good parent, let me say it like this: but more than being a good spouse or a good husband, more than being a good citizen, make every effort. Now you're going to see that that has implications for it, but make every effort to grow in knowing God and doing good. And this is not just Peter, but this is the clear biblical teaching of the New Testament. It's seen. We, we can go back. We could go back and look at the prayer from Colossians that we studied last week. Paul prays that they would have knowledge so that it would affect their conduct, so that they would live like they had the knowledge. Then in Ephesians, in his letter to the church at Ephesus, the first three chapters are all about the knowledge that, of the gospel. And then the last three chapters are all about the instruction that comes in living in that knowledge. To the church in Philippi, he writes this. This was a short enough one that I could just read it to you. He says this, chapter 2, verse 12. Uh, and 13 of Philippians, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only, as my pre- not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do you hear that? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Wait a minute, I thought I was saved by grace. You are? But work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, the gospel doesn't just give us rules to follow. It gives us an ability to follow them. It gives us an ability to become the people that God says we are. And then therefore he says, become them. I've given you everything you need. Use it. Take hold of it. Leverage it. That we can more honor God with our lives so that we can more reflect him in this world. Several years ago, I came across a quote from Jonathan Edwards that speaks to this. It's, it's, it served me as a good reminder. I carry it around on my phone so that I can refer back to it from time to time. I want to share it with you. It says, in efficacious grace, that's the grace of God that actually affects our life, right? In efficacious grace, we are not merely passive, nor yet does God do some and we do the rest. But God does all and we do all. Now, I know that sounds crazy, right? Like, that sounds counterintuitive. That sounds contradictory. God does all and we do all. God produces all, we act all, for that is what He produces, our own acts. God is the only proper author and fountain. We only are the proper actors. We are, in different respects, wholly passive and wholly active. God is the author It is by his power that I have this new nature. It is by his power that I have this knowledge. It is by his power that I have his promise. It is by his power that I partake of his divine nature, that I have fellowship with him, that you have fellowship with him. It is by his power that I have new desires within me. It is by his power that I have a new nature that no longer longs for the things of the world but longs for the things of heaven. It is by his power. He has written those things into his people but we're the actors. We're the ones responsible to stand up and to act like it. We're the ones responsible to do something with it. That's exactly what Peter is calling us to. He's the one that put it in us. Now, do something with it. Act like it. He goes on, but to your faith. See, he he's using faith synonymously with the knowledge of him who called us into uh, to his glory and excellence. To your faith, to the knowledge that you already have that, uh, of the one who saved you, to your knowledge of Jesus as your Lord and Savior, to that knowledge add virtue, excellence of character. It's just being a, 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 a reflection of the character of Christ. Remember, he called us to his glory and excellence. And so he's saying, now, now be like that. Be like Jesus. This isn't doing things with excellence. In the sense, like in the business world, you're, you'll go out there and you'll hear people say, oh, we, we strive for excellence. Okay. And what they mean is they wrap everything up in a nice shiny package so that it impresses people. This is talking about an, a character of excellence. It's, it's talking about people becoming what they were created to be. It says, add to that virtue, knowledge. So add to what you know with more knowledge. Continue growing up in the knowledge of who God is and what he's done. Continuing to to, to grow past the place where you're you're looking at the Scripture and you're you're thinking, uh, that's difficult to understand, it must be contradictory. To to growing up and understanding God in ways that you see past the contradiction. it's a struggle with some of these things. And it takes time and it's a process. It's an education. This is knowing Scripture and knowing it to be God's Word and then then taking it and and, and studying it and allowing it to infiltrate your mind. Because the only way we overcome any lies is to see it displaced by truth. There's a reality that even sitting here, even as a mature believer, I'll just use myself. I I, I think I'm kind of mature. I mean, I'm not done, but but I think I'm mature. Even as a mature believer, there are all kinds of lies. I continue to believe. I need knowledge of God. I need to know him better. I need to know him more deeply. I need to understand him more fully. I need to partake more completely of his divine. Uh, nature. I I, I, I need to know him more. I need to grow in my knowledge if my virtue is going to continue to grow. You see, that's why you add it to this striving after virtue. Because we won't grow in virtue if we don't also grow in knowledge of who God is. So just, just make it personal a little bit you can do this on every one of these. If you have attained a certain measure of virtue, but you're not continuing to grow, it's not because the gospel has lost its power. It's because you need to grow in who you know your Savior to be. It's not because God has withheld something from you. It's because you're not leveraging what he's shown you to know it more fully. We add to virtue knowledge so that our virtue continues to grow. And out of that new knowledge and out of that growing in understanding and capacity to believe more fully, we're then able to begin to see that virtue take full hold to self-control. So that we're not just controlling like, oh, I don't, I, I shouldn't eat that, so I'm going to say no to it. We're not just, we're not just talking about the things we act in. We're talking about the things we desire so that, so that our passions no longer control us, but that we control them so that we take thought or take captive every thought so that we can lead it and direct our lives toward the Lord. See, we need our virtue to grow, so we need our knowledge to grow so that then we can grow in self control so that then we can add to its steadfastness and we can continue to endure in that. You see, each one of these things is related, and and until we get the virtue and knowledge pieces right, we won't see self-control take effect. We won't be able to add self-control without virtue, without a desire for virtue, without a desire for growing knowledge. And self-control isn't something that he calls us to be fleeting in. He says steadfastness. Add to that self-control, that virtue of self-control. Add to it steadfastness so that you can endure in this, so that you can persevere in it, even in the face of difficulty, even when you're tired. So late at night, when you feel the temptation to to go do something that you know wouldn't honor the Lord, so that when you're all alone and no one's watching you, and and you feel the temptation to do something that you know doesn't honor the Lord, you're able to endure, you're able to persevere, that's the idea of steadfastness. It's a result of us taking hold, making every effort to add to our faith, virtue, and knowledge that then leads to us able to begin to control ourselves, that then begin to enable us to endure in, steadf- and in, in, in that self-control, in that virtue. And then he says, add to that steadfastness more godliness. Probably the easiest way to explain this is become what he says you already are. In the gospel, he said, you are righteous. Your sin is separated from you. You are a saint, not a sinner. So live like it. Strive to be saintly. Strive to reflect his character in the world. He says, you are holy. In the gospel, he says, you are holy. He's not saying you're becoming holy. He says, you are holy. You are distinct. You are his. You are are purified. But now make every effort to live like it. Make every effort yourself to be holy. How do we do that? But to continue to grow in knowing Him and growing to know His nature. And then add to that. As you're becoming this person, as you're becoming godly, add to that brotherly affection. As you grow up knowing God, it doesn't doesn't end with you. In fact, not once does He say, seek to benefit yourself. But He says, add to that brotherly affection. Point all the good that's coming up in you. Point all the good that you're learning to do and able to do because you know God. Point all that good activity at your brothers and sisters in Christ that you may know Him and help others know Him. That you may love the brothers and sisters in Christ and that you would prioritize them. This is, not, this is not along bloodlines of lineage that we would count in this world. This is the, along, along the bloodline of Christ. How do we do that? But by the knowledge of Him, and knowing Him more fully, adding to the desire for virtue, to the actual virtue. And adding to that virtue that's being shaped out in us, this, this new knowledge, this growing knowledge, this, this this knowing God more deeply, more fully, so that we can begin to control ourselves, so that we can begin to endure in that self-control, so that it's not all about us, so that we can begin to then reflect him in the world around us, primarily pointing at that, pointing at that all the good works that that's working out in us at our brothers and sisters in Christ. We should be the primary not, Not the end, but the first recipient of all the good that God is doing through the knowledge that he has bestowed upon us. And then, add to that brotherly affection, love. This final trait, it seems to be the one that calls us to reflect God's nature the most. God is love. It's not a good feeling. In fact, we're not even called to like these people. It's not, that's, I don't think that's, that's totally separate from it. But, but he's not saying like people. He's saying be like God to them. As you develop this brotherly love for the body of believers, love them. But don't just love them. Love like God loves. Sacrificially proactively acting for the good of those who become the object of that love, not because of who they are, but because of who he's made us to be. You see, that's the distinguishing factor between God's love and ours is it's not based on who we are. It's based on him. It's based on his nature. The very fact that he has given us by his divine power, his promises through the knowledge of Christ and not based on what we can do is because he has loved us. It's because his nature is to love. So this growing in the knowledge of God leads us to be like him. It leads us to act like him, to reflect him in such a way that the world can see him. And has an opportunity to know him. Because until we know him, we can't enjoy the benefits and blessings and partake, be partakers of the divine nature, enjoying his very great promises. And the beauty of this list, I think, and the beauty of this list is not calling us first to action. In fact, he doesn't tell us specifically to do anything. But he's saying, by the power of the gospel that's in you, because of the gospel that's true in you, because you know Jesus, develop these attributes. Develop these attributes such that they change the way you live, the way you think, the way you act, the way you interact, the way you react. This is what it looks like to grow up as a Christian. It's all rooted in knowing the one who's called us to himself. He takes it a step further. He doesn't stop at, here's the list of virtues developed in me. He takes it a step further and helps us see how that benefits us even more. You see, this is what I said a minute ago, is that we don't want to just know the gospel so we can say we're going to be saved one day. We want to know the gospel. I want you to know the gospel so that you can fully enjoy the presence of God in your life. Many of us are not enjoying him because we're still infants. We never started growing up. But Peter shows us in these next three verses, next four verses, growing in knowing God and doing good promotes effective service. He says that if you have these traits and they're increasing in you, it keeps you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge. Do you hear that? The knowledge of Jesus Christ, the faith, the knowing him in relationship. Now, I dare say, I I think I can say this. I don't think there's a person sitting in this room, I don't think there's a Christian that I've ever spoke to that wants to be, that that, that desires to be uh, categorized as ineffective. I don't think there's people in the world that want to carry that label. Right? Do you want to be ineffective? Do you want to be unfruitful? I don't think that's likely. And because of what we know of God, I think the natural reality is the natural reaction to that. The na- the nature that's in us now desires fruitfulness and effectiveness. Well, if we have these traits, if we have these attributes, and they are increasing, we don't ever have to worry about being ineffective and unfruitful. Are you? Are, are you not growing? Are, are you not bearing fruit the way the Scripture indicates that you should? I mean, the reality is, is that the most natural thing is to begin to blame everybody else. As a church, we see it happen regularly. God isn't performing the way I want. It must be your fault. Um, I don't feel welcome here. People are not nice to me here, and they don't love me, and it must be your fault. I'm not learning and growing. It must be your fault. I'm not, I'm not talking, about, I'm talking about our fault, right? I'm not, I'm not saying this is a... I'm saying there's a reality that the church gets blamed for all kinds of things that really are the responsibility of the believer. You notice he didn't say, make sure everybody is doing this, right? You, you, you notice that he didn't say, make sure everybody else is adding this. He pointed this at every believer and said, this is your responsibility, every Christian's responsibility. So there's two ways I think we can handle this rather than blaming people as if it's our fault. I do think the church has a role in it. I do think we have a responsibility to teach. We're going to get there in a minute. But if you are ineffective and unfruitful, you can't blame anyone else because God has already given you all you need for life and godliness. If you know Christ, you have been given all you need for life and godliness. He has made you a partaker of the divine nature. He has made you a beneficiary of his precious and great promises. And so if you are ineffective, if you recognize in your life you are ineffective and you are unfruitful, it is not because the gospel has failed or God's people have failed. It may be because you have never known him as your Savior. You may have known religion. You may have known a self-help mentality, but you have never known the Christ that says, you are incapable, but I am making you capable. You have never trusted him and him alone. So first, do you know Jesus as Lord and Savior? Do you know him? Do you trust him? If the answer is yes to that, but you still see yourself ineffective and unfruitful, what are you doing in light of it? Are you leveraging the truth of the gospel, the knowledge of Jesus Christ in your life to grow in virtue, to grow in knowing God, that then you can see that virtue pour out across your life from self-control to loving others? You see he says when we have these attributes when we pursue these attributes the things we long for our ability to enjoy God becomes a very natural thing because we find ourselves effective and fruitful the next thing he shows is growing and knowing God and doing good prevents spiritual blindness in verse next next verse verse 9 for whoever lacks these qualities is so near sighted that he's blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his sins There's a spiritual blindness and inability to see. And so that's why you blame everybody else because you can no longer see. You can't make sense of your situation. You're blind. You've forgotten who you were before Christ so that you don't know who you are because of Christ. You're blind to the reality of your situation because you've not taken hold of what God has given you and fought with everything you are, making every effort you can to grow up. So you feel disconnected and alone. You feel distant and unwanted. You can't see that people love you dearly. You have no ability to to walk away from the sins that plague you, the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. You see them winning because you're not doing anything with what God has already given you. And the plea is, brothers and sisters, make every effort to avoid, to prevent this spiritual blindness, make every effort in the gospel to use the gospel. And then the next one, in verses 10 and 11, he says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, again, referring to these seven attributes, these seven traits of a believer, in this way you will be richly, or if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. See, Growing and knowing good and doing good produces assurance of Salvation. Many of us don't feel assured of our salvation. We don't feel safe in our salvation, not because God isn't speaking truth when he says you're mine, but because we are not using what he's given us to use. You want assurance of your salvation? Make every effort to grow up in the knowledge of him who has called you into his glory and excellence. It's not because the gospel's failing. But because God's people are failing to grow in the gospel. Somehow we've bought into this lie that I can just show up. I can just barely participate. I can just barely be attached. I don't need any, I don't need this really until I die. And, and then when I die, God will be there. For many he will, but you'll never enjoy the assurance of knowing that. You'll walk around afraid. You'll walk around seeking to impress him some way. You'll find yourself failing and ineffective at it. You want to know the assurance of salvation. Then walk in the gospel, leveraging the gospel, that you would grow up in the gospel. We are all responsible to this. Not simply because God wants us to do it. Because in it, that's where he meets us to fill us with joy and satisfaction and peace and assurance. One of my favorite books written by J.I. Packer, I read it and reread it. I read it and reread it and will continue rereading it because I think he does such a great job of just demonstrating how important knowing God is. He writes this. He says, what were we made for to know God? What aim should we set ourselves in life to know God what is, the eternal, what is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. What of all the states God ever sees man in gives God most pleasure? Knowledge of himself. Once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. You know why we don't have everything we want? (laughs) Because we don't know God as fully as we should know him. You want to know peace, you want to know assurance, you want to know fruitfulness, you want to know the sense of purpose and effectiveness in life, then know God and grow in knowing this God. Finally, in verses 12 through 15, Peter then turns and says, because I'm near the end of my life, And because I see the necessity of this, I am going to continue to remind you of it. There's no greater call, there's no more important thing for me to spend the rest of my days doing than reminding you of this, that God has by his divine power given you all you need for life and godliness. So use it. Now, I'm going to summarize this, and I have a long point. It'll be on the screen so you can read along. Because growing in the gospel is invaluable. Every Christian needs to be reminded often so we can recall the power and promises we have received that make us responsible to grow in knowing God and doing good. I had intended to talk about this at the beginning, but then I realized, well, maybe you wouldn't listen after I got really personal. I left it generic, biblical illiteracy, not knowing God through his word is not just an American church problem. It's our problem. Many of the people sitting in this room are more prepared to talk about the entertainment industry the show they're watching then quote more lines of movies they find entertainment in things that dishonor God because they don't know God's word and thereby they don't know God I'm not saying they don't know him in a saving way I'm not challenging your salvation I'm saying you're still an infant that smells a lot like the world I mean we could We're infants laying around in dirty diapers. Let's say it like that. Infants laying around in dirty diapers because we've never grown past that stage. Many of us sitting in this room have made every effort to prepare ourselves for a vocation that we can live comfortably in this life. And so we're more prepared to retire than we are to die. We have more assurance that when I turn 55 I can quit working than I can face the eternal God in heaven. See, many of us today will hear this and they'll go home and they'll think, well, I've done enough. I mean, It's not about my work. It's not about my effort. We'll go home and we won't make every effort to add to the faith that God has already bestowed upon us, virtue, knowledge, uh, self-control, perseverance, I can't think of the word, uh, godliness, brotherly love, or godly love. But we'll make every effort to fit into the world that we live in because it makes us feel comfortable. Here's my conviction believe it's the conviction of your pastors. We've talked enough about this. I don't think we'd be here. I just I want to be very careful as I, as I use these words that I don't speak for people that wouldn't want me to speak for them. I, I think we all are 100% agreement here. Our conviction is that we will go down. We will not, not go down. We will double down on the efforts to help you know God. We We'll make everything about that in every way we can make it. And we won't feel one ounce of, uh, of guilt or one ounce of uh, uh, feeling bad about the idea of calling you now to take advantage of it. He, by his divine power, has given you everything you need for life and godliness. If you know Christ, then you make your life, you send to your life, you give every effort to knowing him more fully, that your life will reflect him. A dumbing down, a throwing away of knowledge will not fix our issues. Only knowing him more will. So I would love to fill your life with things that would keep you from engaging in worldly activity so that you might more fully enjoy him. If that means reading a book while you're at home instead of turning on television, so be it. If that means that being here an extra hour every week is an expectation of every member in the church, so be it. If that means that the expectation Is that we grow together in the knowledge of this God who sought or or who saw it worthwhile to make himself known, to call you to know him, to give everything to that? So be it. That is the call. So, what are we going to do? What will you do? Let's pray. Father God, we desperately need you. Obviously, we can't do this without you. You've given us what we need through the gospel and now called us to live because of the gospel. Help us do it. Pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.